The last several weeks, we've been talking about the life of David. And David really went through a lot. If you go back and you read some of the things that David went through, some of the things that we've talked about, he really went through a lot. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about David being pursued by the destroyer uh, Saul. So I'm going to, uh, if you have your copy of God's Word, go ahead and turn to 1 Samuel. I'm just going to remind us of some things before we, uh, we dive into Psalm 57. 1 Samuel, starting in uh, chapter 21, verse 10. If you, if you follow back in 1 Samuel, this whole kind of uh, issue between David and Saul started a, long, a, a good number of chapters ago. Um, but here in chapter 21, verse 10, listen, listen to this. And this is the saying for Psalm 57. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did not they sing to one another of him in dances? Saul struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors to the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? That's a good question. Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Quick side note, that is the background of Psalm 34 that we sing here all the time. Right? Taste and see that the Lord is good. I saw the Lord and he rescued me. Magnify the Lord with me. Did you know that David wrote that song when he was trying to act like a lunatic to get this king to leave him alone? That's when David wrote Psalm 34. 1 Samuel 22 says this, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. It's the first, verse, first half of verse 6. Now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. I just want you to get a feel for what's going on. I don't know if you've ever had a, like a, like, hopefully you haven't had a bad day like this. But songs are often written in really, really hard times. Um, maybe, have you heard this, the story of the song, uh, the song, It Is Well? You guys know the song? It's one of the best songs in the, in the world. We sing it pretty regularly, and I just want to share this with you. This is another uh, example of songs being written on bad days. Desiring a rest for his wife is written by a guy named Horatio Spafford, and this is what we learn about Horatio Spafford. 
desiring a rest for his wife and four daughters, as well as wishing to join and assist D.L. Moody and his musician Ira Sankey in one of their campaigns in Great Britain, Spafford planned a European trip for his family in 1873. In November of that year, due to unexpected last-minute business developments, he had to remain in Chicago. But his wife and four daughters were sent on ahead as scheduled. He expected to follow in a few days. So just think about this. This guy's wanting to go on a vacation somewhat, wants to minister, wants to take his wife and his children, his four girls with him. And on November 22nd, the ship that they were on was struck by an English vessel and sank in 12 minutes. Several days later, the survivors were finally landed at Cardiff, Wales, and Mrs. Spafford cabled her husband, quote, saved alone. All four of his daughters had died. His wife was the sole survivor. Spafford left immediately to join his wife, and the hymn is said to have been pinned as he approached the area of the ocean thought to be where the ship carrying his daughters had sunk. We sing this regularly. That's an example of tragedy and desperation. And in the moment of the greatest desperation, uh, floating over top of the area where you understand your four children to have died in a shipwreck, you write, it is well with my soul. I remember when I was little, you probably, maybe you have this experience, we would always uh, sing Amazing Grace. And here's how we would sing Amazing Grace. I'm not going to sing it without an instrument. But those of you who are musicians, or maybe if you're not a musician, you'll, you'll maybe remember this. Um, the third verse would always be played in a minor key. So we would sing, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed." And then we would sing, "'Through many dangers, toils, and snares. You know why? And then we get to the last verse. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, tis grace that hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. We've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. You know why we did that? Anybody else do that? You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Music has this way of communicating deep truth that words themselves cannot communicate. And not just the lyrics, but the music itself can communicate something. Even if you don't realize what's happening, deep in your soul, if you were to hear it, you would know what was happening. Or you, might, you would know something is happening. Look in, look in your Bible at Psalm 57. This is what the ESV says. So before verse number one, there's a heading above verse number one. And it says to the choir master, according to do not destroy. Or maybe your translation says, sung to the tune of do not destroy. I would presume that the tune do not destroy probably wasn't like a happy clappy song or tune. This is one thing I do want us to see before we really get into the text. Right out of the psalm book of the Bible. If you have the book of Psalms, you're never without something to sing. True worship 
is not exclusively praise. It is, of course, not less than praise, but it is so much more than praise. True worship is comprised of praise, but also lamentation and desperation. There's sometimes a well-intentioned but misguided understanding that when people of God gather, there should exclusively be, to state it in a kind of a crass way, partying. But we need to realize David in this psalm is worshiping, and it doesn't look like partying. Sometimes we need to cry out in desperation to God. Sometimes we need to lament. Sometimes we need to repent. I don't know what you came in here with today. I don't know what this week has held for you. I don't know if you're coming off the, uh, the heels of a, of a great week where you are exuberant, filled with joy, and everything has been great. Or if this past week has been the worst week you could have imagined. I don't know. For some of you, I do. But for many of you, I don't. Of course, we need to rejoice with those who rejoice, but we also need to mourn and weep with those who mourn and weep. The brokenhearted need to feel welcomed into the church just like the joyful, and worship needs to reflect this. Last week, uh, we were going to start the service with rejoice, the song that we just sang. And uh, after talking to Pastor Brandon about it, and we just kind of decided the situation in the world right now, our worship needs to reflect this reality that things really aren't great right now. So we sang, on Jordan's stormy banks I stand and cast a wishful eye to Canaan's fair and happy land where my possessions lie. A song of hope, of looking beyond our situation. So from the cave that David is in, on one of his worst days, according to this psalm, David does three things. Number one, from the cave, David petitioned the Lord. So David's first prayer, the first thing out of his mouth, two times, he's repeating himself, is that God would be merciful to him. This is not the same kind of mercy that David prays for in Psalm 51. If you remember his song, uh, this, what he wrote when he was repenting and confessing his sin of sinning with Bathsheba. And he's praying for mercy, for forgiveness. This is more like a desperate cry for help to God Almighty. God, I'm in a situation, and I don't know how I'm going to get out of it. Have you ever been in a situation where all the religious stuff, if you just strip it away for a minute, and your guttural response, like a reflex, is to cry out to God for help? And you honestly think, there's nothing that I can do here. I can't fix this. I'm out of control. I can't do anything here. If anything is going to be done, it's going to be done by God Almighty. This is a desperate cry for help. This is where David has found himself. This guttural response, be merciful to me, O God. He is on the, uh, on the run for his life, and he cries out to God Almighty for help and for refuge. As honestly, just want to ask you, like, I am sure that in a with this number of people in here, that somebody has come here today looking for refuge. Somebody has come here today looking for help. Maybe you have been coming here for years and you have found yourself in a terrible situation, but you feel like you can't tell anybody. David found himself in a horrible situation. And there are two tempting but unhelpful ways to respond when you find yourself in the cave, so to speak. Number one, 
you can deny this despairing reality. Deny it. Pretend like it's not there. Those of you who've been through things and ask the question, is that helpful? No. Or you can nurture the despairing reality. David does not deny his situation. Look at verses 4 and 6. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down among fiery beasts. The children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Verse 6. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. David completely understands the situation in which he's found himself. But David doesn't wallow in the despair. He, does not, he doesn't wallow. He doesn't nurture it. David does what all of us should do. Do you realize how incredibly practical the Scriptures are? They can help you. They ultimately point us to Jesus. But man, in the, on your darkest day, I don't want this to sound like just pick yourself up. Because that's not what David's saying. That's not what God says. Just pick yourself up and get over it. That's the last thing we should do. But here's what David does. Are you ready? If, you're, if, you're, if you are in the midst of your darkest day right now, this is what David does. He turns his eyes to the only one who can truly help him. The only one who can truly help him. David's, he seeks refuge in God Almighty. This is not denying the reality and it's not nurturing the reality it's looking beyond and above the reality unto God the one who is sovereign this is what we've all got to do if you've come in today and you are in the cave and you don't know if you're going to make it back out please turn your eyes and seek refuge in the only one who can truly deliver you David uses the language of soul we're going to talk about that in a few minutes we'll come back to that my soul seeks refuge in you. So from the, de- from the cave, David petitioned the Lord. Secondly, from the cave, David put his complete trust in the Lord. Complete trust. That's hard to do. That is a hard thing to do. Look at verse number two. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He has just said that he's going to take refuge in the Lord until the storms of destruction pass by. This is so instructive for us, y'all. Do you know what is higher than the storms of destruction? What's higher than the storm? This is what David said. The one who is higher than everything else, the one who is sovereign and above every single other thing or situation in which you could possibly find yourself God most high. He is higher than the storm of destruction that's swept over David right now. He turns his eyes above the storm and looks to God, the one who is reigning and ruling over the storm. And there's a big difference between wishful thinking and hopeful praise. How many of you know this? You found yourself in a situation and you and you just this wishful thinking, oh, everything's fine, everything's going to be all right. And that's way different than saying, I am fixing my eyes on God Most High, the sovereign over whatever situation I find myself in. He is looking to the one who is sovereign and he is preaching truth to himself. He completely trusts God. He gives himself completely over to the Lord. 
David trusted two things. Look at verse 2 and verse 3. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me, and he will put to shame him who tramples on me. Selah. That means to say it kind of like this. Just take a second and think about that. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. The first thing David trusted was God's plan. David knew that God had a plan for him. David knew that God had had this purpose that God himself was going to fulfill in David's life. And David knew what we all have got to preach to ourselves all the time. It's important that you hear me right now. God's word cannot fail. God's word cannot fail. David knew that. We have got to preach that to ourselves all the time. David knew that the one who was high above the storm of destruction would deliver him. David trusted God's plan. David also trusted God's provision. Look what he says. He's confident. You know what one of the biggest problems that can happen in your life? When you come into a situation where uh, you are in desperation, is that you put your confidence in your own self, in your own strength. Do you realize Many of you do because you've done it and you know it's, 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 it's vain. You cannot deliver yourself. You cannot do it. You cannot provide salvation for yourself. This is what the entire Bible is about. You cannot save yourself. God will provide. David trusted God would provide for him. He's confident not in his own ability, not in his work, not in his merit, not in his fighting ability, but in God. And this is what David says. Have you ever said this? You're on your worst day and you say, God will send from heaven. David was confident. He will send from heaven and save me. And what is it that God dispatches to rescue David at the end of verse 3? God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. This is what David's saying. The world's changing. We could say this right now. The world's going crazy. There's all kinds of stuff happening. The world's getting darker. The Lord's getting closer. And we want to say what David said. The world changes. God does not change. He is steadfast in his love for you. He is faithful when you remain faithless. He is faithful. David trusted God's plan and God's provision. So not for a moment did David deny his situation. Rather, he placed his complete trust in the one who is high above the storm of destruction in which he found himself, God most high. So very practically, what does it look like for you to completely trust the Lord? I know that this is kind of a, uh, you might be in the, the, the darkest hour of your life right now. And hearing me say this, you might be tempted to think, what are you talking about? What, what qualifies you to talk about this? This is, we just said it, God is unchanging. God is steadfast. His word is unchanging. And when I come up against the hardest day of my life, I need you who are in the hardest day of your life right now to come to me and say, let me remind you what the scriptures say, what God himself says. What does it look like to trust? 
It means praying even though it may feel like and everyone around you is saying your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. They're not. It means if God says this book right here is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for rebuke, for correction, for instruction, for training in righteousness, then we will trust him. We read it. And as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, we do what it says, even when we don't feel like it. We trust him. If God tells us that by the Spirit we put to death the deeds of the flesh, we should fight as if we believe that's true. Even when the world says, indulge the flesh, you trust God. And if my feelings are telling me that God has forsaken me, guess what? My feelings are lying. If you feel right now like God has forsaken you, you need to preach to yourself and remember what what God himself has said. His steadfast love and faithfulness. He has not abandoned you. And if we it means really believing Romans chapter 3 verse 4. If you're taking notes, write that down. This is how the ESV translates it. Let God be true though everyone were a liar. One of my favorite things to do is to read Eugene Peterson. He paraphrased the Bible in what's called the message. And here's how he says it. Depend on it. God keeps his word even when the whole world is lying through its teeth. This is what it looks like to trust God. Is when the world says, what are you doing? When the world mocks his return. When the world tells you, you're wasting your life. You're obeying this, this, the, the, this Jesus. Indulge the flesh. It looks like even when you don't feel like it, you trust. I had this conversation this week with, with a, a, an acquaintance that I know and told him this. He was asking me, why do I need to go to church? And I just told him, I said, brother, at the end of the day, You live in a world that says, you know what's best for yourself. The scripture tells me, I don't know what's best for myself. God does. So even though you might not feel like getting up and going to church, even though you might feel like, what's the point? We trust that God has told us this is what we need to do. We do what he says because we trust him. Somebody once said, when I can't see his hands, I trust his heart. Or we sing all the time. You've already won. I don't know what you're doing, but I do know what you have done. I'm fighting a battle. You've already won. When you can't see what God's doing, you trust him. So in this case, in the cave, David petitions the Lord. And from the cave, David puts his complete trust in the Lord. Come what may, I trust your provision. I trust your plan. I'm in your hands. It is in you that I seek refuge. And then finally from the the cave, David praised the Lord. David praised the Lord. At the center and at the end of David's song is the most important part. You know what it is? In the midst of the storm of destruction, while he is waiting for it to pass, from the mouth of the cave, we can imagine. Just get the picture in in your mind. David's in this cave, walking to the edge of the cave, looking under the heavens. And he says, be exalted, O God, above all the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. In Hebrew poetry, the climax is not at the end, but it's in the middle. At the very center of David's song is his desire to see God glorified over all the earth. 
And I think it's so helpful to see in these, these 11 short verses that the same truth is communicated in three different ways. Number one, from the heart of the earth in a cave, David cries for God to be glorified. From his steadfast heart, he says in verse 7, My heart is steadfast. Oh God, my heart is steadfast. So from his steadfast heart, as he says here in verse number 7, David cries for God to be glorified. And then at the heart of this song, in the middle, in the climax of the song, David says, God be glorified. It's as if David wants us to understand that he's really trying to get at something here. On one of the darkest days of David's life, he turns his eyes to the heavens, and from the deepest part of his being, he cries out, Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. This is David's cry. I want this to be my cry. I want this to be our cry. What is the ultimate desire of your heart? This is a moment where you really consider in the, in the deepest, darkest day of your life, and whatever comes out of you, the guttural reflex that comes out of you when you come up against the hardest thing that you've ever experienced, what comes out of you? Is it, be exalted, O God? Is it panic or praise? Again, this is not meant to be a try harder, do better message. It's also not meant to make those of you who are in a storm feel bad if you haven't sought refuge in the Lord. This is an invitation. When you read the scripture and you read the things that Jesus said and you read the things that David said, this is an invitation to come to him. To take, this is from Psalm 34 when David was acting like a lunatic trying to save his own life. And he said, taste and see. David himself is inviting you to taste and see that the Lord is good. This is what he is saying to those who want to believe but are struggling to believe. You don't have to raise your hand, but I'm sure that somebody's in this room and you're saying, I really want to believe that. I really want to. I just can't. This is what David is saying to you. Come taste and see. See that the Lord is good. Come and see for yourself. He is worthy of your deepest praise on your darkest day because He alone is the one in whom your soul can find refuge. He alone. This is what uh, often Satan will do. Our enemy. He will look at sin and he will say, uh, that is the solution to your problem. So he will look at pornography or uh, alcoholism, or addiction to pride, addiction to uh, anything, fill in the blank, and he will say, you're broken, and this is the solution. Indulge the flesh. Jesus looks at it and says, that's not the solution. That's the symptom of a deeper problem. It needs to be mortified. It needs to be put to death. And then, David, he gets these incredible Closing words. Look at verse 8. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. 
I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. So awake my glory is what he says, or my, my whole self, my whole being. This is what David does in verses 8 through 10. If you're struggling to believe this right now, you can do what David does in verse 8. Preach to yourself, wake up, wake up. My whole being, my glory, there is no part of you that doesn't need to hear this right now. Awake the deepest part of me and realize there is no refuge except for in God alone. And then he says, wake up, instrument of praise. Harp and lyre. David calls on the instruments of praise to wake up. You know what one of my favorite things to do during the week in this room is either, or in my office is if I come in here, I sit down right over there on that piano and wake that piano up. Or I go to my office and I pick up my guitar and I wake it up. Do what you were created to do, O piano and guitar. <laughs> do what you were created to do, O harp and lyre. Sing praises to the Lord. And then he says, wake up the dawn. It's as if David is moving from the deepest parts of himself to the farthest reaches of creation saying, wake up. Praise the Lord. And David isn't merely observing that the dawn is awake. He's saying, he's going to wake it up. I will awake the dawn. From David's soul, the deepest part of him, to the instrument of praise, to the created order, to the nations in verse number 9, David is calling for the praise of the Lord. Worship is an invitation to come and see. See for yourself the one who can deliver you from the storms of destruction. And we said earlier we're going to return to this language of soul. David starts the psalm by praying for personal deliverance. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful. And he ends by praying for divine glory. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. And there is one place where these two things converge. Deliverance and glory. You know where it's at? The cross of Calvary. Listen to this. John 12. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered, listen to this. This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up, will draw all people to myself. Jesus had been saying for a while now, the hour has not yet come. We talked about this in Sunday school this morning. Uh, the first miracle that Jesus performed, turning water into wine. And his mom comes to him and says, this party's going to die if you don't do something. And Jesus says, my hour's not here yet. My hour hasn't come. This hour that... that Jesus and John specifically is recording, they're waiting for this eager anticipation for this hour to come. 
Finally, Jesus here says that it is time for him to be glorified. It was not only the resurrection. See, this is sometimes, here's what, here's what we do. We can skate past the crucifixion unto the resurrection and say, that's the hour of glory. Jesus himself says that the cross is the hour of glory. When he is lifted up, he will draw all people to himself. See, God is fully glorified in Jesus, and Jesus' glory is on full display at the cross where he provides deliverance for his people. Personal deliverance, divine glory. This is why David, though he didn't clearly know then what we know now, used this language of soul. David knew God would provide refuge for his soul even if he didn't know how it was going to work out. He entrusted himself fully to God. He trusted it would work out. We now know how it worked out. Not because we're smarter than David, but because we look back at Psalm 57 through the cross where deliverance and glory converge. So I'll close with this. Jesus is the refuge for the people of God. Jesus alone. He is our refuge. He is the only place where your fine soul can find true refuge and deliverance. Jesus alone. So from the cave, we petition the Lord. From the cave, we put our complete trust in the Lord. And from the cave, we can praise the Lord as, the, as we are in the midst of the storms of destruction, as we wait for them to pass. Ultimately, we know what David knew in part, we know fully. Jesus is the only hope for my soul, for your soul, there is refuge in him alone. I'm going to invite you to stand and we'll pray together. Father, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the instruction that David gave us. Thank you that when we find ourselves in the deepest, darkest hour, when we find ourselves humming the tune, do not destroy. When we hear the storms of destruction passing by. When we come up against the most difficult thing we've ever experienced in our lives. God, that we can praise you. We can petition you. We can put our complete and absolute trust and confidence in you. Because it is in you alone through Christ, that our soul finds true refuge. God, we thank you that Jesus lived the life that we could not live. He died the death that we deserve to die. He laid his life down for our forgiveness, was raised back to life for our justification on the third day. He has ascended to your right hand as king over all heaven and earth. And one day, very soon, he'll return for us. Thank you that all of that, no matter what happens to our flesh, that our soul finds its refuge in the Lord Jesus Christ. We love you. As we sing now, um, we pray that uh, the word of Christ would dwell richly in our hearts. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.